Acker and Blacker, the guys who brought you the thrilling adventure hour, present Acker and Blacker's Star Wars themed book release variety show slash benefit for public council. A star-studded night full of Star Wars themed comedy and music. Featuring performances by Weird Al Yankovic. Open Mike Eagle. Michael Giacchino. Zach Sherwin. It's a town with a bar where the music's lively. Gabby Moreno. Sarah Watkins. Take a look at the beating up the wrong guy. Featuring appearances by Steve Agee, Mark McConville, Janina Gavankar, Matt Gorley, Busy Phillips, and Ahmed Best. It's just been endless green lights for me since, <laughs> since 97. The entire two-hour show will be available for download on May the 4th at thrillingadventurehour.com. Proceeds benefiting public council. Perfect it is. Remember, thrillingadventurehour.com on Star Wars Day. And then join the resistance. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers' Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben. And it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm thrilled to have you guys here today. Um, uh, I have with us Warren Littlefield. Please say hello. Uh, It's good to be here, Ben. Thank Um, you. And uh, all things uh, Handmaid's Tale. I love it. And Bruce Miller. Hi, Ben. It's nice to Thanks for having us here. A pleasure. Um, I'm excited to talk to you guys, not just because I think The Handmaid's Tale is a really terrific show. Uh, and I want to get in on that. But you guys have had fascinating careers in television specifically. I feel like you can shed a lot of light on where we've been and where we're going. We'll um, do our best. But let's start with Handmaids. Um, I think the big, 
a, a lot of the talk around this show, which premieres on Hulu the 26th, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. On April 26th. April 26th. Um, I think a lot of the talk has been, now is the time. <laughs> the time could not be more right for this show, the themes of this show. Um, but we were talking before and saying, sort of, when you guys got started, you couldn't have known where we'd be politically and uh, in, in culturally in this moment. No, um, we started this um, project, or I, I became involved in this project well before the election, kind of at the very, I think, the beginnings of the primary season. Um, but, you know, the book is 30 years old. And, uh, you know, every time that I've, I read it 30 years ago, and I've read it a bunch of times since, and every time I read it, someone is saying how this is the really prescient time to be reading The Handmaid's Tale. It's one of those kind of perennially perennially relevant yeah. books in a startling way. So, you know, when I, when we started working on it, uh, I know that, that um, myself and the whole writing staff are all very kind of political news junkies. Everybody was really up to date. And there was plenty of stuff to write about then before the primary season even really began. Um, and it's certainly gotten more and more uh, it seems more and more like we planned to be right at this moment but in fact uh, there are lots of things that we wrote months ago shot months ago, edited months ago and now are mirrored on the pages of the newspaper that we you know, there's nothing we didn't expect it at all. I mean we have refugee stories and we wrote those and did those long before there were um, you know, um, American refugees trying to cross into Canada. I think we always felt um, a pressure um, to live up to Margaret Atwood's vision. Her novel um, is a powerful, powerful look at a dystopia. Um, and um, as, as the alt-rise um, began to surface throughout the, uh, the primaries, um, and those voices got louder, um, I, I, I think as we entered production, we, we felt even more, um, you know what, we better not fuck this up. Um, there's a responsibility um, to Margaret, to the quality of her work that that we want to live up to, um, as well as what we all carry inside ourselves uh, mm-hmm. to try and do great work in a world of television that seems to get better every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we woke up in Toronto and uh, in November, and and Trump won, and and it was a very strange feeling. Um, and we we kind of went, wow, pressure just got higher, you know. There, uh, um, and uh, and yet we were following um, Bruce's words. We were following mm-hmm. his scripts, um, his interpretation of what Margaret wrote, and that we were always guided by that. Mm-hmm. I just think we became more aware of the world around us than ever before. Sure, as, as many of us did. I mean, I think there was also this sort of impetus to do something or say something with the tools that we have, and you guys luckily were already in the middle of it, and you could all of a sudden use this uh, to continue saying the thing you want to say, but it takes on added resonance. Um, Bruce, you were telling me before that even if someone else had done this project, you'd be the guy saying, don't fuck it up. You love this oh, book. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I, I was a fan of this book. Uh, I read it in a new fiction class when I was mm-hmm. in college, which tells you how long ago <laughs> I was in college. And I, um, I, I just liked it as a, as a book, as a 
as a story, and it really taught me a lot about storytelling and about writing. Um, and uh, I read it a bunch over the years, and then uh, they made a movie out of it, and I was very eager to see the movie. Um, they've also made an opera. I have not seen the opera. They've made a lot of plays. Uh, and um, I was just a big fan of the story. And, you know, the things that I've seen, the book, the, the um, movie that I saw didn't quite capture the world as well as I wanted to. Hmm. So really, um, I, you know, one of the things that they asked me when I went in to talk about getting the job was, are you nervous about you know, taking on this material. And I said, well, if I was nervous, you shouldn't hire me. Hey, hey, um, you know, you should be excited about doing it, not nervous about doing it. But also, you know, honestly, uh, you know, I think the thing you're afraid of is that the the, the real fans of the book are going to be disappointed. And and I'm one of those fans. So, uh, you know, it helps a lot when you're working on a project like project at all when you're mm-hmm. when you're the audience mm-hmm. it, it doesn't always happen i mean it's it's almost dumb luck because i work on lots of things where where i i do uh, you know very very good work and stuff i think is really interesting but it's not really for me and this was really i was the audience and probably one of the more critical pieces mm-hmm. of the audience uh so uh, you know you want to and and I think we had to rewrite a few rules of adaptation in this, which normally you're, and I think they're the, the rules that have been changing slightly over the last few years with kind of Olive Kittredge and mm-hmm. Life of Pi and those things, where instead of trying to pull something out of a book and dramatize that, you're trying to dramatize the feel of the book, the whole world of the book. Um, and, uh, you know, the tone of the book, if you look at something like our Olive Kittredge, where the tone is so particular in the novel, and then they capture it, and it, it you know, for, for better or worse, you know, you know, it's a kind of an uh, uncomfortable book. And so, and Handmaid's Tale is the same thing. And I think that we really, um, uh, we all looked at it as, we didn't want to pull things out and capture those. We wanted to capture the whole feeling of the book. And so you, what you end up doing is throwing out a lot of other rules about structure and drama and kind of what comes first and what comes second and act breaks and all these things and just instead pivoted to, well, let's let the way Margaret puts the story together guide us because it works, not because we have some kind of misplaced loyalty yeah. or fealty to the book, but because it was so resonant for us as readers. Yeah, uh, that's something I want to pick up on uh, in a minute, but I do want to go back to the beginning. So now, Warren, presumably you were uh, involved with this. Uh, you predate Bruce. Were you one of the people looking for someone to write this? No, actually, oh. um, I came in after the fact. Um, uh MGM uh, controls the property, um, and they are our our studio, and so it's MGM uh, for Hulu. Um, And uh, the property had been in development at Showtime. Um, They hit um, some snags, um, and they decided to um, start again. And Hulu uh, was very interested in in taking on an adaptation of Margaret's book. And um, as as they uh, tell the story, um, they interviewed a lot of writers. Um, and ultimately, it was Bruce's vision that they felt um, was the one that they would uh, move forward with. Um, and they came to me when Bruce had delivered two scripts. Oh. Um, and um, they were starting the casting process. And um, actually, my agents at WME said to me, um, Lizzie Moss is interested, but um, 
we're not letting Lizzie Moss do anything until we feel she's like protected, mm-hmm. right? And so you should read this material and uh, and tell us if you think this is something you'd be interested in. And I was like, hmm, okay. So I sat down and read Bruce's first two hours, and I just went, oh my god. This is unbelievably compelling. And I knew of Margaret's book, but I hadn't read it. Mm -hmm. So I then put the scripts down, and then I sat down and read Margaret's book. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and read Bruce's scripts again. And I said, "Um, look, I'm I'm doing development with a lot of things that um, begin with me. Uh, I'm in pre-production for another year of Fargo. Um, On a lot of levels, this makes no sense. Um, I shouldn't take this on. Um, And I wouldn't know how to walk away from it. It's Hmm. that powerful. Um, And um, and life is about um, making leaps. So I said, uh, I love the opportunity. And they said, great. Lizzie is in Australia. She's doing Top of the Lake 2. You need to get on the phone with Lizzie. You need to convince her that (laughs) you are the executive producer, along with Bruce, that uh, Lizzie should do the show. And um, and she should relinquish uh, director approval. And I said, you know, I've never met her, right? (laughs) And they said, but she's looking forward to your call. Oh um, and, and so that was my jump in the water. And, um, and Lizzie was doing Top of the Lake, too. Mm-hmm. And we spoke for a few hours. And then I think Bruce and I had, I don't know, while Lizzie was in the middle of making Top of the Lake, too, we had 150 emails with sure. her. Um, just talking about detail and all kinds of things. and Because there was no concurrent time where we could all be on the phone. Because she's in Australia shooting. Yeah. So she's working all day and she's in right. Australia. You know, and so our joke was always we'd put at the bottom of the email what day and time it was when we sent the email because you'd have no, yeah. no matter how good your math skills That's are, right. you'd have no. And we would always give her time, day, and weather of where we were. <laughs> and, um, but it was, it became this remarkable relationship. We actually met Lizzie formally in Toronto. In Toronto. Okay. When we first, yeah, when she came to get, when she arrived to sure. shoot. I mean, I had never met her in person. We had spoken a thousand times on the phone yeah. and exchanged. It was you know, it was, it was bizarre, bizarre to finally, really finally be together. But um, so that was uh, that was the way I found myself in it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I my words to Lizzie were, "Look, you're at a place in your life where you have incredible incredible choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you have great material that comes to you." Um, I'm fortunate enough where I'm in a place in my life where I've got some pretty good choices. I don't know how to walk away from this opportunity. And if you do it, I'll do it. And that was it. That was the pact. And um, thank God we did. (laughs) Uh, I I, I mean, because it's been wildly satisfying and rewarding. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that does come across on the screen. I mean, that everybody cares about this material, about Absolutely. the show itself, about the story you're telling. Uh, I want to ask um, each of you, what is your, you know, you, you were sort of an arranged marriage on this, and what is your expectation of 
the showrunner of the executive producer. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting because it, it was one of the first things when Lizzie and I first talked. You know, you never want to be – Lizzie is, is wonderfully um, – you know, po- has great social skills, polite and, and respectful, and all those all those things which are not an anomaly in some businesses, but are sometimes <laughs> an anomaly in ours. <laughs> and um, uh, she didn't want to make me feel like she was, uh, you know, not trusting that I was a good human being. But I mean, if you read the scripts, I don't know that I would want to work with that person. I mean, even if they're a good writer, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's you know really harsh stuff. But. You know, Wizzy's been on enough shows, and I've been on enough shows to know that, and, and you know, and, and this is, goes back to your question about Warren and I, uh, it's a marriage. It isn't dating. A movie is dating. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. go, it's six <laughs> weeks, and everybody says, ha it's all wonderful. You can smile through all that time. And I've worked with a lot of actors who are feature actors, and, and after they've been on a show for a couple of months, it's terrifying. Oh, my gosh, it's it's not going to end. And... Lizzie, more than almost anybody, knows that. She's been on more long-running series. Sure. Uh, and so when she said, you know, I I don't mean to, you know, insult you. I, I said, no, I want I want you to know what you're getting into um, because it's a very long-term relationship. You know, in success, you're bound together for quite a while. Um, and I think uh, Warren and I both, you know, uh, know that. And uh, we, you know, I think... What the expectation of our relationship is, there's a good hard delineation because I write and he, at this point, doesn't write, mm-hmm. although I keep pushing him to try. <laughs> uh, this I would love yes. Way too kind. Yeah. This I would love um, I did write a book. Yes, I was going exactly. to say, exactly. but, you have that experience. Yeah. And I, exactly. Let me just interject here. Uh, Top of the Rock, for people who have not read it, is, and if you are listening to this show, this is a book for you. I mean, it's a really terrific, one of the great Hollywood inside books. Uh, it taught me a lot about this business. So thank you. Thank you so much yeah. uh, uh, for a plug and uh, <laughs> kind words. Yes. Go then. get it. We're not sponsored. But anyway, uh, Bruce, you're saying. I was just, I was just saying there's, there, but with any kind of these working relationships, you know, you know, I said to Warren, I think the first time I said, you know, you're used to being the boss, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, how's this? And, and in this particular situation, it actually only, it works the best when there's one boss. It, it does. And luckily Warren, you know, that was exactly how he wanted to structure things. Um, and just that, because you that need... Bruce was the boss. Yeah, you just... Mm-hmm. You because, need, <laughs> because you need the guy with vision mm-hmm. to... That's it. It all starts from a vision. And Bruce had that. And that was what... That's why I was attracted mm-hmm. to be a part of the show for that vision. And my role is in support of it. That's really what I'm meant to do. And I think that, uh, you know, Warren has a kind of an unprecedented, um, unmatchable experience in understanding the the business and how decisions are being made on the other side of the telephone, which is something that, that, you know, I've spent my life learning how to write and I haven't spent my life in those rooms. Um, but, but also just as someone who I can you know, talk things out with. There's a lot of my job. It's a lot, a lot like any other jobs. You know, you you write and write and write and write and write, and then the prize for that is here. Take on this whole portfolio of skills <laughs> that you don't have. Yeah. You know, management <laughs> yeah. and budget and all these yeah. kind of things. Yeah. And so, you know, if you are 
uh, a dummy, you just assume that you could do them all. <laughs> and if you approach it with a little more intelligence, you realize you have some uh, weaknesses that need to be shored up. And that's where having someone who's who so not only just knows how to do that stuff, but is you know expert at doing all of those mm-hmm. things. Uh, it you know that that I mean I think from the beginning I. I uh, had complete confidence in in Warren, complete trust that mm-hmm. you know any representation he made of the show would be you know uh, aligned with mine. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's worth thank you, Bruce. Um, I, I think it's worth also worth saying, you know, in in making high quality television content, you're aspiring to do art. Um, and you also have to do it on a budget. Um, and so um, really brilliant, talented directors who could take a scene and and spend most of the day on that one scene. And if they do, you're dead. Yeah. You're dead. It, it, it's over. You and cannot. it's not time poorly spent. It's time very well spent. Sure. But we just don't have that much Absolutely. time. Absolutely. I mean, this yeah. is a TV show. The way they're made hasn't really changed in yeah. 70 years. So, um, and yet, the bar keeps going up. Yeah. So, um, it would seem that Offred in her bedroom um, and what she is doing, pacing, um, she's feeling... Uh, she's been banned to her bedroom. Okay, should that be that complex a scene? Well, in order for Reed Morano to bring that to life in the most interesting way, the way that Colin Watkins has lit it, the way that Reed is directing it, the nuance of movement, the up off of the off of the bench and walking across the room, lying down on the floor. The detail of that is um, makes or breaks the show that we're doing and that episode and, and, and that scene and that moment. And easily we could say, okay, that's eight hours, um, and we would never be able to produce the show. Right. So, so that's the constant game that we're playing is is uniquely rendering the material that Bruce has created that he has written and can we deliver that in a way that's absolutely compelling mm-hmm. um, and on a schedule mm-hmm. and we have to think about those things before we write the script at yeah. the story stage because otherwise you're constantly trying to fit three shoes into a shoebox and and you know no matter how you space it around you either have a shoe or half a shoe left <laughs> over um, and so I think that that we you have to pick and choose and one of the good things is that as you write for longer and longer in this business, you internalize a lot of those budget things. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you just naturally set more than one scene in a location mm-hmm. in an episode because, you know, when you get down to production, we don't shoot in order. We shoot, we move things around. And so you can put more than one scene in that location. So you, you can build a day around that location where you can shoot there all day. Right. Um, those things, you know, you find with very new writers that, you know, they, they don't know the difference between night exterior and <laughs> night interior. Those are very different things. But on the page, they're not. <laughs> you know, on the page, they look absolutely, absolutely. the same. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, that um, uh, you know, just kind of having, being facile with that kind of production stuff 
helps an incredible amount. But then, uh, you know, we always are, you know, our, we're trying to have our reach exceed our grasp all the time. So we're always trying to write things that you almost can't do. And I think that's where having uh, Warren at the pro- the point of the sword to solve problems mm-hmm. and say, okay, um, and also to come back to me and say, okay, you know, this is where we've gone. We can't do it. And I know that when he says he can't do it, it can't be done. It's not like, you know, you know and <laughs> right. so then, then I go back and I can fuss with the script and make changes in the story. Yeah. We, we did have a moment when a director said, this can't be done. <laughs> and Bruce and I were sitting there with the director and said, but it must. And wouldn't have made it into the script, presumably, yeah. having you guys behind it yeah, if and, it couldn't be done. Yeah. And, um, and ultimately, you know, we were able to navigate it. That's and, great. And, and that's, the, that's the creative challenge. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and what we ultimately uh, produced and, and were able to present um, mm-hmm. are, are the benefits and the rewards of that. Well, and this is something that, and, you know, this is getting pretty heady pretty fast, but it was something that occurred to me in watching the show and knowing the names behind it, that, you know, it's come up a lot on the podcast recently, this idea of uh, art and craft mm-hmm. and ambition in storytelling. Mm-hmm. And the shows that are on now are can be extremely ambitious, um, you know, I feel like looking at the stuff, uh, Warren, the stuff that you talk about in Top of the Rock, for example, uh, are shows that created art when most of what was on TV was craft. And that's really a hard and impressive thing to do. And, and Bruce, I know you have worked on shows, uh, which, I mean, ER at its best could be art. Mm, and I know you've worked on shows where you were not the showrunner, and maybe the person who was running was not so ambitious in the storytelling. I mean, we've all had those experiences. Absolutely, yeah. um, so as we look at the landscape now and look to making something with ambition, something that is attempting to make art out of craft, how do we know... How do we know to do it? How do we not exceed uh, our grasp or, our, or what we, our ambitions? What we're capable of doing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Fargo is a great example of this. I mean, I think Fargo is sort of a watershed in, in what is contemporary storytelling on TV and what's possible. Um, and I just, you know, there's no real question here. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on this conversation. Well, I think a lot of, a lot of the things that you're talking about are not budgetary. Mm-hmm. Um, Fargo's a, re- a really good example of it's much more of uh, the vision that um, Warren and Noah have for the show, um, but it's also the tone and it's it's putting people in one kind of car in one set of costumes with one kind of hair versus yeah. another, which those two things take exactly the same amount of time and cost pretty much the same amount of money. It's shooting somewhere where there's lots and lots and lots of snow, which is a pain <laughs> in the ass, but it's not something people haven't done before. Yeah. Um, so all of those decisions, I think when you when you look at something like The Handmaid's Tale, you, you're, you're trying to be bold in what, first, before you do anything, you're just trying to be bold in the ways that don't have anything to do with money, mm-hmm. don't have anything to do with price. The only difference they, they really have is attention to detail. For tone, tone requires incredible attention to detail. And uh, so I think that w- when you're doing things like that, you have to, that does have a cost. That has a cost in time. That has a cost in money. You know, um, you know if you spend five minutes every hour a little bit extra fussing with stuff, that's an hour 
by the end of your you yeah. know ten hour day that it's gone, um, and you only have ten of them. So that's ten percent of your time is gone. Yeah. Uh, so I think that um, you're you're uh, you're trying to at first talk about the things that are just a level of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, you know, one of the big differences between, as you said, you know, art and craft is really that, that when, when you're, when you're making a show that's, that's ambitious, you're always trying to ask questions. That's what I always say is that, you know, when we do our job well, you know, we're always in the question business and oftentimes the Mm -hmm. studio says, well, what does this scene mean? And I say, you know. We're actually, that's not our business. Our business is not what does it mean. It's like, what does it ask? What does it ask? If it asks something's interesting, great. You know, it's the the other side is actually someone else's job. It's the person (laughs) watching is to find the answer. Yeah. Um, I I think an important element, Ben, is um, you have to ignore some of the rules. Uh, When we first started Fargo, uh, I was like, well, what's your format for an hour show? And they're like, 42 minutes and 30 seconds. I was like, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and um, and that's kind of what we get paid for. Um, and our Fargo probably averages 55 minutes an episode. Um, it would be easier to produce 42 <laughs> so. minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. But the complexity of character and story um, and and the kinds of breathing, living that exist within that narrative, um, scenes that would never be in a procedural, mm-hmm. they would never be in a, in a network show or, or a love cable as well. That's where we live. And, and so I think it's really important to figure out where you live um, and honor it and then break a lot of rules and how you get there. And that's not necessarily the simplest, easiest path. No. Um, it, a lot of times it's a, a far more difficult path. The results, when you get it right, are really rewarding. And and uh, you know, when, when we went back and said, well, what do we do right? And what can we do better on, on, on Fargo? It was... I, the studio couldn't ha- help but ask, well, maybe you shouldn't do episodes that are 55 minutes. It would be, <laughs> and, but it was, we were never going to go back on that. Right. We were never going to change that because that's where we live. Mm-hmm. And um, the same is true for Handmaids. The complexity of these episodes, the journey that offered, but also the rest of the ensemble mm-hmm. that they go on requires more time. Um, and um, what's great is with a Hulu, with an FX, with with a number of um, platforms now, they embrace that television is not cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. They absolutely love that we go into it with a rule-breaking sensibility. Yeah, and I want to pick that up in a minute, but this kind of gets back to a couple things you were talking about, Bruce, which, is, which are... Um, you know, the idea that you did have to break traditional storytelling structures to tell this story. Um, so I'm curious about sort of finding that in those first few scripts and, and discovering how the best way to tell Handmaid's Tale is. 
Well, interestingly, I think I was certainly told young writers are always told, you know, no flashbacks, no voiceover, <laughs> uh, which I use both in the first, yes. you know, 150 seconds of the show. Um, and uh, I, I think the, the, the way that I approached it is that I think I, when I look at my kids, I've, I've – um, uh, a 12-year-old, a 18-year-old, he'll be 18 in a couple of days, and a 20-year-old. And they consume so much more narrative than we ever did, whether it's a two-minute narrative or a 30-minute narrative, that when they walk into the room and you're watching something, they say, that guy did it. There is there, And I think that we are, uh, in general, um, uh, dramatic writing has relied on you know, the, an Aristotelian setup, which is, you know, you have rising action, you have a climax, you have falling action, you have all those kind of things. And um, what I, I kind of realized is that, you know, that works okay when someone's going to one play every six months. And it works okay <laughs> when someone's watching a TV show once a night. That's but funny. when you're watching 50 things a day, it, everything becomes completely predictable. So you kind of have to throw that stuff out the window, it helps a lot when you have a novel by Margaret Atwood who's not writing a dramatic piece. She's writing a novel, which is structured differently, so we can take that structure and and bend it right. for, for ourselves and rely on that structure more than on a traditional dramatic structure. Um, but so, so I think that I, I don't ever look to break rules. My, um, my question is, is always what would really happen? Mm-hmm. You know, what would they really say? What would really happen in the real world? And I think that when you look at things that way, uh, you have to forget the, the TV version you've seen 600 times. And sometimes that is what would really happen, and you embrace that. Um, but I think uh, with with this show, to replace that, we really use point of view, mm-hmm. which is we have a character who leads us through the story and what she sees we see, and what she doesn't see, we don't see, mm-hmm. and that creates a stressful environment, yeah. and a stressful environment where her choices have consequences. In this case, the consequences could be, you know, death, could be, you know, just you know, disappearing off the face of the earth. So we're we're we have a a nice setup in that regard because I don't want to say. I mean, I, I am incredibly pedestrian at my core in terms of entertainment. I like, you know, really entertaining stuff and I think that the this show more than anything, you know, from the very beginning, it has to be entertaining. You have to feel stuff, you have to be involved, you have to want to watch the next episode, you have to care about the story and uh the rules that we don't follow the traditional rules that we don't follow are all in service of making it more entertaining. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting uh thing about this show where emotions are not worn on their sleeve in this world that that, has, that Margaret created and that you guys are bringing to the screen and yet every scene is really fraught uh, and it's not always because of the voiceover which does really a great job of sort of putting us in Alfred's head uh, obviously but how do you how do you accomplish that you know feeling of emotion from people who don't show emotions uh, well um um, as a, as a wasp, I'm sure Warren can speak to this more than I yeah. because as a Jew, that doesn't really end up being a problem. But no, there's none um, of the yelling I'm used yeah, to. Yeah, uh, but um, I think that when I look for actors, and Lizzie certainly uh, 
is part of this part of this philosophy is you're looking for someone who has a main circuit cable connecting their heart to their face and that it doesn't have an off switch. You want someone who, um, like Melinda, somebody who you can see just, you know, every emotion that goes through their heart shows on their face. And so um, you want to with with Lizzie, it's great because even what she doesn't want you to see, you see. Mm-hmm. And with all of our actors, I think to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the scene or the situation, that's what they are and that's what makes them good. Is that even if that that the audience feels like they know them better than the other people in the story and maybe even a little better than themselves, that we have a rooting interest in her doing, you know, don't don't join in in something violent and terrible because I know you'll feel guilty. And when she joins in, we forgive her because we know why and we know those things. Um, but I, I think that the it, it's a difficult challenge. I did a show for a pilot for HBO about Salem, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I did it a few years before I did Handmaids. And you start to realize some of the problems you're going to face, which are Everybody's everybody's in a bonnet. Everybody's in basically <laughs> the same uniform, yeah. and you don't see very much of them at all. You see their faces, so you can't, you know, say, "Oh, this is the the skater guy. This is the artistic girl. This is the whatever." There's none of that. They yeah. all look exactly the same, and so you learn how to rely on their faces. One of the other things, and and um, Warren, we've talked about this, and and this is really a big change in both of our careers, is. Uh, I know it sounds strange, but the resolution people are watching it, that, uh, you know, TV existed for a long time at a fairly consistent and, and you know, now it seems like a low resolution. And there was lots of makeup on people's faces and and that that's makeup hid their face. Yeah. Um, that's what they wanted it to do. When HD came around, there was this big revolution in makeup. People were terrified because when you when you started to watch stuff in HD, you could see the makeup on their face. Yeah. You could see the actual line where the makeup reaches, touches their skin. So uh, we made a decision on this show that didn't have anything to do with uh, really with, you know, we're not making a statement. We were saying, well, in this world, they wouldn't wear any makeup. I mean, why mm-hmm. would handmaids wear makeup? So Lizzie wears zero or almost zero makeup. Right. There's some continuity makeup. And Yvonne wears almost zero makeup. Wow. And and the show is in even more high def. It's in 4K. It's in 4K, yeah. It's in 4K. So inadvertently, when you watch the stuff, we've gained 50% of their face. Yeah. All of a sudden, it isn't hidden under makeup, and you can see every muscle, every twitch. And I think that that... Level of communication, and also, you know, we, you know, Reed and Colin, who was our DP, you get up in everybody's face. Yeah. These camera shots are way up in their grill. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, but uh, the characters and the world um, portray them as physically and emotionally bundled, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so it's Bruce's surgery that that allows you to understand. And and that camera that finds the intimacy with the eyes, with the face, to ultimately reveal what's going on. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think that's a really interesting pact that the audience has with these characters and the story unfolding. Because we want it is as we are as viewers, we want a connection. And yet, if that connection's too easy, then it doesn't become rewarding, yeah. right? Absolutely. And so that tension um, and the bundling, the rules 
of that society um, are have a lot of barriers to entry. And then that becomes a dance, I think, with Bruce's narrative, hmm. with the characters, and ultimately making a connection. And the stronger the connection, obviously, the more rewarding. An um, earned connection. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. Mean, that's a good point. Um, I, this is sort of a technical question on that, on that uh, point. But what do the stage directions in the script look like? I mean, Fargo has, sort of has this thing, too, of, like, you leave so much to the actors. They do such heavy lifting uh, in both of these shows. What, is, what are you telling them through the script? Well, um, I've always been, uh, as my writing has developed and gotten better, it got a lot more spare. Um, and for a while, um, uh, because I feel like when people have a normal conversation, most of the things they say are either not true um, or the opposite of what's true. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, when you see someone, you say, hey, how are you doing? And you don't really care how they're doing. And then they say they're fine, <laughs> which is probably not true either. I mean, it's, it's almost all not true. Um, and so I think that as I so I started to write that way, but I wasn't successful. People, you know, didn't like my scripts because I think. I, it was it was it, in, incomprehensible. I mean, with, I was writing in such a spare way. So I started to write more, not long, because my stage directions aren't very long, but precise stage directions as an emotional ladder for the for the actors, um, and to be really quite you know, precise and very taciturn in what I say, mm. but to give them something to hold on to. So that's, that's, so my stage directions are very much, uh, kind of giving them the, the honest reflection of the scene. But the other thing is, and, and this is very true when you're talking about what, when, as Warren was talking about, uh, offered in her room, the, the the show is visual storytelling. I know it seems like it's got a lot of words and it's got all this like voiceover. No, it really doesn't. It's all visual. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. and that's the key is to is and speaking is just another action like slapping someone in the mm-hmm. face or stomping on a bug. So speaking in this mm-hmm. case is like like you know we we forgive or we. You know, when you watch TV, sometimes you you feel like, well, someone who does, if someone punches someone on impulse, we can get an explanation for that and understand that. But if they say, I hate you, that's the truth. Hmm. Well, it's actually the opposite, or it's not the opposite, but right. certainly I hate you is could be as much as a, a punch. Hmm. And so what you want to do is just look at the dialogue as yet another action in that visual storytelling. And so that's how I lay it out. So the 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 visual storytelling, the action going from A to B to C the the dialogue is just part of that the the staff made fun of me this year because I'd often write a line of dialogue where the line of dialogue would say yes and the parenthetical, which is the dialogue direction, would say no. <laughs> like, 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 the way you're supposed to say yes is yeah. no. I mean, you can, but it works very well, especially in a world where people are, where where uh, it's it's politics mm-hmm. with a life and death with yeah. life and death stakes. They're compelled to speak untruths just right. as a way of getting along and to be extraordinarily careful. Yeah, um, and also to listen exceedingly carefully. There's a line at some point where the commander is being relatively flirty with Alfred, and he says, "We need to do something about those legs." And there's a look on her face, and in the in the in the script, it says, "Do something about those legs." Does that mean cut them off, or does you know? Because she has no idea what what he's talking about, and so everything can be so horrible. And so it's it's that's what I put in the stage directions to make sure that Lizzie sees oh that there's a couple of ways to interpret this, and I'm just giving her 
version A, and she comes up with mm-hmm. you know version of C through W <laughs> right. W W. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and there's a great scene. Um, in the second episode, that Scrabble scene towards the end of the second episode, where sort of all of this stuff that you've been talking about kind of comes together, and we get to see, you know, the the physical, the spoken, the unspoken. It's really a, a phenomenal sequence. Uh, congratulations yeah. on that. Thanks. There, a lot of it is pure Margaret, um, and there's mm-hmm. just my one of my, and and there was voiceover in it, which we ended up not using. But one oh, of the my favorite lines in that is she says he says to her. I imagine this feels a little strange. And there's just this long pause, and the audience is going, you think? I mean, it's like, good. You know, it's like so fucked up and so strange and so weird. And she says, a little strange. But this, it's a long Great. pause because I think the show works, you know, there, there's a very dark show, a very political show, a, you know, a thriller. There's all these things. But there's mm-hmm. also kind of an absurd comedy buried there. Yeah. That, that off-red uh, you know, the voice of June in her head certainly recognizes that this is really my Thursday. This is what I'm doing today. This is the you know. There's no. Yeah. She she definitely has the distance to understand that this is a weird friggin' world. When we introduce Scrabble in the second hour, um, the 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 touch of of those letters mm-hmm. that represent ultimately words, um, the ability in in this world of Gilead for a woman to interact with words letters that will become words the the it's a very uh sensual um it's a relationship that she's been denied <laughs> and and so it it's a it's monumental mm-hmm. to open up to Alfred that she actually has been invited into the commander's office um at night and she will be exposed to words. Um, and uh, we, we kind of make a meal out of it because it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and yet it doesn't feel operatic. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it feels very human. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and it helps us, it helps reinforce in the specificity of that game um, what that greater world is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't need tanks and we don't need men with guns. We don't need uh, we don't need that. We have an appreciation for words mm-hmm. in that moment. That's interesting. And it sort of comes back to what you were saying, Bruce, about, you know, it's it's all through her point of view. I mean, this is the world she lives in. We're experiencing it through her. Yes, and I think being operatic is something that we're always trying to avoid. You know, I I want it to feel real. Um, and uh, everything about that scene, uh, up to and including kind of how it's lit, was the commander's decision. He's turning on and off lights. He's, you know, getting his, you know, he's yeah. posing for her when she comes in. It's all set <laughs> up and everything. Yeah. And so, you know, you're trying to think about, okay, why does this world, why does this situation look the way it does? But the other thing is that that uh, the pacing of the show, I think, grew up a lot when we shot that scene because uh, 
you make it long enough that at a certain point the audience goes, oh, we're going to stay for the whole thing. Hmm. And you can get an actual hmm. level of, of yeah. you, everybody's anxiety goes down. You're not waiting for the, because, because we're not asking the question of, oh, have we established the thing we're going to establish and then we're going to move on? That's not what we do on this show. <laughs> we're not establishing something. We're showing you yeah. that thing that happens from Offred's point of view and how she navigates and all that kind of stuff. We're not just checking something off on a plot sheet. Um, so because we're doing that and because it's a little bit longer, I think it doesn't feel operatic because it isn't overly long. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's shorter than a Scrabble game. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, but I, I, do, I do like the fact that at a certain point the audience relaxes into the scenes when they're a little bit, not mm-hmm. all our scenes are long, yeah. but some of them are very long. Um, you know, when we were uh, when we were looking for the location for loaves and fishes, um, and that's the market. Mm-hmm. The handmaids walk to the market, and um, our our world is Cambridge, Mass. And so we were we were looking at these beautiful, all brick, hundred and fifty year old buildings, and and there was a real hominess to them, um, and. And Reed Morano uh, felt strongly about it, our director, and and so did we. It's like, yeah, that's a fantastic little market, but we want a supermarket. As Bruce was saying, what's real? We want a neon uh, fluorescent lit supermarket. Um, And... And that is as common to the audience as as an everyday experience yeah. that you get. And once you're in it, um, what will be revealed? Well, um, the product selection, um, those shelves aren't full. Um, there's fruits and vegetables. But um, looking at the labeling, um, there's visuals, but there are no words yeah. on any of the labels. Um, and there's guardians in the market, men in... Black has clad suits mm-hmm. with with uh, automatic weapons, and and what we take is the usual. Go to the supermarket and help inform that it's unique and unusual. Mm-hmm. This is our world. This is what our supermarket looks like, and I think it's those kinds of choices that help us say, Ah, now I understand the world that we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it. it it makes it a much easier entry for the viewer, mm-hmm. too. Uh, you know, even thinking of, like, that first flashback sequence feels like almost something familiar, almost something we've seen on network TV of these people running from bad guys. Mm-hmm. But it gets turned so quickly and in such an interesting way that can only be of this world. I think it was really smart. Um, I want to come back to uh, sort of, sort of a, a broader point about this, which is, this show does know what it is uh, from the beginning. And, and Warren, you were talking about, you know, the show has to live where it lives. It's an interesting thing to hear considering, you know, both of you guys who sort of came up in network television in the 80s and 90s, uh, the 90s especially, um, and where in many ways, you know, you were making the rules of what TV would be for the coming decades, but breaking them too. And I'm curious to hear about you know, one of the first shows that you had were a part of was Cheers. Yes. Uh, you know, when we look at the shows like Cheers and the shows that came after, like Seinfeld and Mad About You, things like that, how does that fit into this idea of the show knowing what it is, living where it lives, but also 
being kind of what TV was at the time. You know, you couldn't do a 35-minute episode of Seinfeld. Right, you, right. It had to be 23 they tried. or whatever it was. <laughs> sure, I bet. I bet Larry David tried. <laughs> he did. Uh, uh, Larry would often write scripts, and uh, I would just go, you know what, Larry, let's just turn this into a two-parter. <laughs> he would go, great! <laughs> and right. I, I would get more Seinfeld. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things I think was, a for me, been a lesson learned uh, in my broadcast network days is that um, your biggest upside is to cut against the grain Um, and uh, look you can fill a time period with um, you know a family comedy that's not offensive and you know whatever you can you can you can do a procedural and you can kind of play by the rules and that's fine you can park something there and and, you know with a little luck uh, you might be able to get a few years and and not have to worry. But your biggest upside was always the things that didn't play by the rules. Mm -hmm. Seinfeld had no clue. Larry and Jerry had no experience in the medium. And they didn't know the rules, and they just made up their own. Um, And Larry began with stories about nothing where there was no story and then he became addicted to story where four <laughs> and five storylines were overlapping and intertwining and 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 he the the form of comedy was prior to Seinfeld was um two acts um four four scenes in act 1 and three scenes in act 2 it was every Thing that Norman Lear did brilliantly, yeah. Larry started doing instead of seven scene episodes, 14, 21, 28 scenes. Hmm. Um, he changed the structure mm-hmm. of the form of comedy within the parameters of what was on TV. Yeah, I mean, what was allowable. Know, he, on yes, TV. he had to. Uh, That's interesting. He, he had to uh, still deliver an episode um, uh, under a time limit, and yeah. I kept adding commercials because we were getting paid so much <laughs> sure. for, for the show. Um, but he just kept breaking the rules um, because that was uh, really interesting to him. And, and I think, uh, look, ER was, of course, um, a medical drama, um, but the approach to it, mm-hmm. the the visualization of it, um, the the way that John Wells took the inspiration from Michael Crichton and understood how to run, um, uh, that became this like thrilling. The audience said it was an action adventure show. Yeah. I was like, huh? <laughs> but that's how they felt when they were watching it. And um, homicide and, and so mm-hmm. many more. Um, things that scared us that felt uh, law and order. Um, the early research on that was disastrous. Interesting. Uh, uh, crime and punishment. Yeah. Uh, dividing up the form. Uh, when you break away from norms, um, you may fall on your face. Mm-hmm. You may fail. But um, you also can break through clutter. And we live in a world of infinite choice right now. So um, the idea of finding something that is a unique narrative form 
strong characters um, in a journey that we haven't seen before. Um, that's exciting. Yeah. That's thrilling. <clears throat> and it may or may not work, but um, that's so much more fun and interesting to try. Absolutely. Why, why do it if you're not going to take the risk? Yeah. Um, <coughs> Bruce, you've talked a little bit um, about learning different modes of storytelling and really learning to tell stories from you know the beginning of your career to now. I'm curious if you can go back and kind of talk about some early experiences where you really learned how to tell stories on TV and what was expected of you as whether it was a staff writer all the way up to a showrunner. It's, uh, it's a big question. It's a lot to cover. but Well, uh, no. I mean, I, I think one of the, uh, the, the first way to talk about it is really that um, the system in, in our business is set up very well to teach people how to tell stories. Um, you have an experienced showrunner at the top, and they have a group of people who are going through breaking every story with mm-hmm. that person, seeing the process from beginning to end, and gradually they learn. And over the years, you hope that your staff writer becomes a story editor, becomes a co-producer, and then eventually writes a pilot and runs their own show. And when they run their own show, if... The process has worked correctly. Um, they they have all the skills that they need. They they are they are you know loaded for bear and they can do the job. Um, and the things that that's that's you know a a casual but huge benefit of the way that things have been set up. Um, I, I don't think it was the intention of either the writers or the, or the you know, the studios who are paying the bills to, you know, have a school for, <laughs> for writers, but it really has been a kind of a mentorship program. Yeah. Uh, and um, some showrunners take it more seriously than others. We've gone through spates where we have very inexperienced showrunners, and whereas the shows can be excellent, the the training that they give to the other people on the staff is is non-existent only because they're kind of fumbling their way through as well. Um, so, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the you know the first bit is that the way it's set up really helps you learn, um, and uh, I, I think that uh, when I my first TV job was on a job, a show called Higher Ground, which was mm-hmm. a million years ago on Fox Family, I believe, with Hayden Christensen. Um, and uh, and then I did ER after that. And I learned how to break story, which is what we call kind of figuring out what happens in the episode A to B to C, um, from other writers who had learned from the time before. So, you know, the people who were teaching me had been on television shows that were 20 or 25 years old at that point. Um, And and now they're 50 years old. So what you don't want to do is just, you know, take what they teach you and say, okay, that's the answer. Um, But you also want to... The great thing about TV versus features is you're writing with other writers. And so a, a lot of writing... Uh, you know, people operate out of fear. They don't want to change their way of approaching a story because it's scary and, and you're investing a lot of time and, and money into it. And so you don't want to go in unless you have the best chance to, for success. But, you know, when we devise our ways to come up with stories, we have no idea what we're doing. It's before we've actually figured it out. And so the thing that TV afforded me along the way was to actually see how people's brain works. Brains work because it's working in front of you. You're seeing them break a story in front of you. And so because of that, you if you just 
um, learn to listen, which took me a very long time to do, <laughs> um, and not just wait for my turn to talk, mm-hmm. which is a, a whole different thing, uh, then you can see that as many writers as there are, they all have a different approach, and they all, some people go to it through, they have to figure out the first scene before they figure out the second scene. Some people have to figure out the whole story. But, and so you learn a lot of that, but also I think that um, y- you learn kind of, uh, like we were talking about, the rules. And if you are uh, in it for long enough, you start to understand the why of the rules. Mm-hmm. And when you can understand the why of the rules, why, you know, don't we have flashbacks? Why don't we have voiceover? Why are those things rules, quote-unquote rules? Right. I think that once you understand the why, then you can just serve the why and you don't have to worry about the rule anymore. Mm. If the reason you don't have voiceover is because it, you know, it takes people out of the story, what you do is you say, okay, well, how come... How can I do get that information across without getting people out of the story, or what can I do? And so I think that the key to to for, at least for me was to develop a good, strong foundation in my own story. Like, what do I think a story is? And then to see lots of other people approach that same thing, and then go that next step beyond and say, okay, well, I have this whole bag of rules. But is do all the rules boil down to don't run into the pool? Is that the rule? Is that the okay. only rule that really matters in the end? Um, and I mean, I mean, I, I've taught writing before, and and you know, we've got a room full of people here. If I said to you, "What's a story?" What's a story? I mean, I taught a writing class where we had twelve weeks, and we spent eight of them talking about what is a story, <laughs> um, because it's a very difficult question. Um, Very complicated question. And so uh, lately, you know, the last probably eight or nine years of my career, I've spent thinking about that particular question. And the closer I get to kind of coming up with a good answer, um, that then, I mean, my, this show, Handmaid's Tale, if you look at, you know, uh, we, we, after I wrote three scripts and gave them to the writing staff, and I don't know if Warren had this question, but the writing staff did, they said, well, what constitutes a scene for you? (laughs) what is a scene and what is not a scene in this show? And I said, a scene is a change in state. Someone goes from being scared to being more scared or scared to being less Mm -hmm. scared or happy to being sad or, you know, ignorant to knowledgeable or what have you. It's a change in state. And uh, so... But that isn't the rule. That's that's kind of saying, okay, well, you know, in this show, we're not laying down a rule. We're saying in this show, in order to have something on TV that we want to see is interesting, at the end of it, that doesn't be different than they were at the beginning. Um, but I think you define those things for each show because each show is so very different. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, we do have to start to wrap up. Um, so first of all, thank you guys for being here. This was... I learned something every time, and this is <laughs> certainly no exception. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. So I hope you guys will come back. Um, we'll wrap up by saying, first of all, Handmaid's Tale is on Hulu, April 26th. Um, is it a weekly rollout? Do they all come out at once? How are they doing it? Three hours. The first three okay. episodes will be uh, rolled out on the 26th of April. And then each week after, okay. um, on uh, uh, Wednesday, right. um, they will roll out a new one. Good. So I'm- you got to big bite um, <laughs> yes. in uh, night one. And you're going to want to watch, sit down and watch all three of those, I guarantee it. And then you're going to want a week off before you watch the fourth. <laughs> to catch your <laughs> breath. To, to catch your breath, yes, <laughs> absolutely. We did build it that way. That's great. Yes, I yes. was curious about that and, you know, this kind of, these new modes of distribution dictating certain modes of storytelling. Yes. So it's, that's no, no, and it's, it's very true. I mean, when we when I wrote on ER, you want, we knew when it was on, mm-hmm. and you want people to have, need at least like a 
one or two glasses of scotch to go to sleep. I mean, that's what you're gearing towards. <laughs> and here, w- one of the first questions I asked Ula was, are, you gonna, are we going to show it all together? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to show week to week? Well, the fact that we're showing it week to week, the episodes are a lot more intense. Uh, so uh, we're offering horse tranquilizers for, <laughs> for anyone who uh, watches. Necessary. Uh, uh, let me wrap up just by asking you guys, what are you watching on TV right now? What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your family, friends, rooms? Uh, I, I'm re-watching Stranger Things, which I really enjoyed. Love uh, Stranger Things. I really enjoyed it. Um, this morning I was watching uh, 13 Reasons Why with my, with my daughter. Watching her go, I can't stand it! The, the, the <laughs> level of tension in a 12-year-old yeah. watching 13 Reasons Why is, is magical. Um, and, and, and other than that, I've been watching some older stuff. Uh, you like know, what? I watched um, I was a huge Battlestar fan of the new show and I remember the old show fondly and I watched that fairly recently oh, um, which was quite fun. Um, I tend to re-watch things. I re- re-watched uh, My So-Called Life this week, um, you know, Stem to Stern, which is probably the yeah. best miniseries ever. <laughs> uh, but I, I tend to re-watch things because I start to dig around in one little moment and try to figure out how hmm. it works. I'm uh, looking forward to the conclusion of Homeland mm-hmm. uh, tonight. I am. Um, I just uh, watched... Uh, Big Little Lies, Mm -hmm. um, which was uh, a powerful, amazing cast, entertaining. Um, I cannot wait for Game of Thrones. Um, That's like major appointment television. Somehow I want to stretch it out, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, and, You're along for the ride. Yeah, and and I think Ben, you know, one of the things I like to do, um, and I've been in uh, pre-production or production for the last nine months. So um, what's waiting for me is I, I really love watching everything that's television from other places of the world. Mm-hmm. I very um, much agree. Uh, yeah. UK. Um, what can you guys recommend? Italy, uh, um, you know, I, I I'm constantly just searching um uh let's see what was the uh, Shetland ha- was interesting uh Happy Valley Happy I Valley. loved yeah. um and I don't uh, know Shetland what is that Shetland's about uh, it's a detective story in the Shetland Islands which is north of north of north you know like uh-huh. if you go to the middle of nowhere and drive five <laughs> and five or six hours then take a ferry I think you get to the the Shetlands but uh it's a British um show and what was the one Mike Barker did the that one I loved. Um, uh, he did the tunnel. He did bro- he did uh, Broad original Broadchurch. Broadchurch, Broad sure. Um, and um, and uh, Mike Parker did uh, was the director for episodes uh, four and five. Oh, that's great uh, for us on Handmaids, and did a remarkable and powerful job. Um, but it, yeah, there's so much to find. Um, so I look forward to that. Should be a fun summer catching up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm glad you guys are getting a little bit of downtime. Congratulations. <laughs> Uh, Congrats on the show again. Thank you both so much for being here. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Ben. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 